0: This episode of Tales from the Crypt is sponsored by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping us stack stats. They've also been the number one finance app in the App Store for the last two years. They're the first peer-to-peer payments app to allow you freaks to buy Bitcoin. It's the easiest way in the U.S., uh, in my opinion. No more having to wait five days for your ACH transfer to come through. Uh, with Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. And then when you're ready to take full ownership, when you are comfortable taking possession of your UTXOs and custodying your own private keys. Just use the Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code and send your Bitcoin off where you can copy and paste the address into the Cash App uh, and take custody of your own Bitcoin. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits, other things that your bank doesn't offer like the boost program, the cash card, which is customizable. Um, and comes with the Boots program, you, helps you instantly save anytime you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, local coffee shops, which is my favorite. I used it two hours ago down the street uh, and saved a dollar. Download the cash app today from the App Store, Google Play Store, Freaks, and keep stacking sats. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty. Been here on a cold, dreary Friday morning in early May, sitting down with a fellow beefy Bitcoin boy. Very excited for this conversation. Finally have him one-on-one in the studio. I had his brother with him well, the first time he was in the studio. I want to introduce you, freaks, again to James Eburn. James, welcome back to the pod.
1: What to do, freaks? <laughs> it's good to be back, Marty. Um, it's, uh, it's a long time coming. Definitely, definitely. I got to say, it's, it's a little disorienting to be sober. <laughs> um, on uh, tales from the crypt, but it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, yeah, this pod holds a special place in my heart because um, I guess it's the first Bitcoin-related podcast I ever went on. But uh, I distinctly remember listening to the first episode on the way to work um, and just being completely floored by your montage. Uh,
0: I, I I know I owe you, freaks, another montage. We need to do a catch-up. The but people th- demand it, Marty. I know. It, the thing about the montage is that you have to write them out. They're like scripts, so I have to write a script for it.
1: Totally. Did you Did you do any editing of that after the fact? Like,
0: yeah, it was not one. I tried to do it in one foul swoop, and, and you really run out of breath quickly. So what I what I found it took me like fifty takes. What I found is that you have to do it one sentence at a time, and then cut it up. Yeah, I was
1: I was amazed. I was like, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's a great work of
0: podcasting. Uh, Thank you, sir. Uh, it's flattering coming from you, a man of your stature. Okay. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i promise uh this episode i'm not going to leave for a pee break in the middle and just leave you on the mic to to riff
1: well we'll see we'll see all we'll right see. we shall <laughs> see
0: so should sure, i into it it's been almost like a year since we last talked. what the hell's been going on what have you been working on? we've had for you freaks that don't know james and i've actually been talking for like an hour already we probably should have been recording those conversations but we'll touch on them again but let's just get uh let's just get a, a check up on james o'burn how have you been What's been going on?
1: Yeah, so when we last talked, um, I had just moved to New York. I just started at ChainCode. And um, for my first few months at ChainCode, I was kind of doing a variety of things. Um, A lot of it revolved around the uh, Bitcoin Optech initiative. And um, uh, basically, it was uh, sort of a process of going around and talking to a bunch of different Bitcoin companies and, you know, seeing... um, where they were encountering uh scaling problems especially with fees and stuff like that um and uh, that was fun and and um uh, it was definitely instructive in terms of how people are are uh, using bitcoin and thinking about scaling um and uh uh, ended up uh, organizing uh, a few conferences and um doing a lot of traveling but honestly i'm kind of a hermit by nature and i'm uh (laughs) I, I consider myself much more of an engineer, uh, than sort of a developer evangelist. And so, uh, I was kind of eager to just get back in the woodshed and, um, start writing code. So, uh, right around December, I think I, I kind of decided to, um, step back from the optech stuff for a little while and, uh, get back to just writing a lot of Bitcoin core code. Um, and, uh, so since then, I've uh, been working on a, a few different things. Um, But uh, I guess we're going to talk about one of them today, which is uh, Assume UTXO. But um, yeah, so in general, just doing a lot of programming, trying to survive New York City, (laughs) um, drinking too much coffee, um, you know, the usual stuff.
0: Well, um, before we jump into Assume UTXO, I just want to thank you and the other people on the Bitcoin Optech team for for putting that initiative together. It's... uh it's been incredible. Uh, the the weekly newsletter, David Harding. Shout out to David, doing an incredible job putting that together. I'm loving the uh, the Stack Overflow highlights that have been in in recent weeks, and uh, the Beck 32 series that's going on now as well. Um, He's a total gem. I mean, Harding Harding
1: is is irreplaceable. He's one of those people who. Um, he, is just a thrill to watch and is is a really kind of unique skill set. Um, you know like being in in the kind of software industry it's it's incredibly rare to meet somebody who is able to articulate the ideas as well as David is as well as um, having uh, you know as deep a technical understanding as he does. and so he is a complete gem. you know the presence of of guys like him and uh, guys like Brian Bishop I don't,
0: do you know do you oh, know yeah. Brian? Kanjer, the fastest typer in the world
1: yeah, yeah, and so not only is he the fastest typer in the world, um perhaps only matched by uh Laulu's um speaking uh, s- speech yeah <laughs> um he's not only the fastest typer in the world, but he has a single markdown file um or maybe a, just a single flat text file where he records every conversation that he has with everybody what yeah, what? so yeah yeah every single conversation he has goes into this text file um and i i got to imagine he's like paraphrasing and stuff but um yeah he's got a really interesting spiel on it if you ever talk to him
0: uh, what uh, what's the gist of the spiel i'm very fascinated about this like i feel like writing uh like, basically, a journal entry a day is hard enough. I can't imagine transcribing the conversations I have after the fact.
1: Either. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, and your, your, your persistence and dedication with the newsletter constantly amazes me for, for equivalent reasons. But um, I guess his idea is that he wants to basically cross-reference all of the the stuff that he's talked about with other people and, and maybe find patterns or... Um, just be able to, to go back and reference uh you know things he was thinking about i don't want to speak for him you know you should you should definitely maybe have him on the pod sometime
0: but definitely um, brian next time you're in new york we need to sit down i need to hear about this uh this practice of transcribing your your conversations after the fact it's, it's incredible like somebody who has six concussions that's another reason why i write like this has to be great for your memory as well
1: are all those lacrosse related
0: no, only one was lacrosse related. Believe it or not, it was skateboarding, snowboarding, fell off a top bunk, uh, basketball, a, a litany of of causes. Man, really, it really a, threw my body around in my younger in my youth,
1: making good use of it. Yeah, that's good. I didn't know you skateboarded. I used to skateboard a lot.
0: Yeah, I was a big skater for a while, especially when we lived in Charleston. Um, actually, getting back into it more recently. It was, we uh, should go
1: out and skateboard because. I would like to, and when I was in California, actually, I picked it back up, but the problem is that you would go to the skateboard park, and you'd be surrounded by um, these, like, you know, 12-year-olds, all of whom are better than you at skateboarding. Yeah, yeah,
0: We don't go to skate parks anymore. We, we just, <laughs> we ride, we, we hop up curbs, we do, uh, we do street stuff. Cool, if cool. we could find, like, a quarter pipe in a driveway, that'd be, that'd be ideal as well. But, yes, yeah. Yeah, I went to a skate park here in Brooklyn, I believe last time I was, like, a year ago and there's like a lot of pro skaters here in brooklyn so you go i haven't skied i'm like oh, pushing 30 almost haven't skated in like a decade and not even a decade i've been skating like seven years mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to get on get back into the skateboard i was like nope yeah this isn't gonna work it's, I, it's I ate shit once and i was like i'm gonna go try to do uh, 180 ollies on the basketball court. that is
1: exactly what happened to me is I was, <laughs> I, was, I was i was trying to learn to bowl skate and i'd showed up early in the morning to avoid you know the uh the utter disgrace brought upon me by the 12 year olds uh and i and i completely ate shit in the bowl and it was the first time in a long time i had felt like sheer blunt pain uh it feels good though sometimes it does you know there's something cathartic about it for sure but i was like i'm kind of an old guy now i can't i can't be doing this
0: yeah i've got a. Um I get a nephew who's, who's getting into it. I've shown Thrasher videos on Instagram, and he like loves them. We call uh, skateboarder savages, and that's probably what'll push me to get back into skateboarding at some point. Let's do it, buddy. Soon. Let's do it. Let's have a skate date. I'd be in, I'd be down. I gotta get a deck. Um, no, it's I mean, skateboarding bring it back to uh, bring it back to Bitcoin in some way. Skateboarding is like uh, something like very ingrained with trial and error, like fail try a trick as many times as you can fail. seems a lot like the Bitcoin core process as well. Um, like yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I've never, yeah, I've never kind of thought about it that way, but definitely, um, trying to get a PR merged is a lot like trying to grind to down a an handrail and like, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> wrecking your body <laughs> in the process. We can uh, always
0: bring it back to Bitcoin on this podcast.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's some, some intellectual equivalence there, but, um, yeah, I, I mean I bring up Brian and and, uh, and David because I think the, the presence of those two guys in Bitcoin just tells me that something really special is going on because um you just you you, you can't find these sort of people in any uh large supply.
0: All right. That's something uh as you meet more Bitcoiners and this is we had uh Ruben Waterman who started this app called Bitter based out of Europe. It's basically a really cool service, non custodial Exchange that allows you to buy Bitcoin. Basically, you set up a banking, um, a banking connection with Bitter with Ruben, and you basically send him money, a set amount of money, and you send him an address to send Bitcoin to. Uh, and you basically send money to his, his exchange, and he sends you Bitcoin within the hour. Mm. And it's never held on the exchange or held in Ruben's custody. He's just buying and facilitating the trade, which is a really cool app, but. This is somebody I didn't even know about Bitter until two weeks ago. Didn't even know about Ruben until two weeks ago. He reached out. was like, I'm going to be in the States. Would love to come talk about Bitter. And met him last night for the first time. And it was just easy to, like, there was already, like, a bootstrapped understanding of of that we're both into Bitcoin and we're sort of into this world and have this mutual uh, sort of mission that we're on. it was just, like, really easy to, not to sound cheesy, but, like, to vibe with him. It was like... And he's somebody who's built like an an incredible service and just doing it purely out of this is going to make the world better. And that's a lot of the Bitcoiners that you meet. Don't want to get cheesy again, but it's the feeling you get. And like you were just describing it about David and and Brian who are, who've done incredible things. And I've had the pleasure of meeting, actually I haven't had the pleasure. I've had the pleasure of watching Brian type at Bitcoin, (laughs) Paul Honey Badger, (laughs) did not want to, uh, did not want to, uh, interrupt him, but. That type of dedication to just transcribing uh, presentations so that people on the internet can can get better information is is why are people doing this? why are people this dedicated to Bitcoin is uh, something i I often ask
1: yeah and it, I mean that that kind of activity that transcription really lends this like historical weight to what's going on it makes it feel like, oh man, maybe people are are later going to kind of read back on this stuff and Aside from it being just a huge resource, if you want to Google, you know, uh, XO or you know whatever your your, your topic is that you want to find more more out about, so it's a huge service. Brian does, but yeah, in terms of the Optech stuff, the other unsung hero there is uh, Steve Lee.
0: Oh yeah, Moneyball, baby.
1: Moneyball, yeah. He's um, he is just a, a gem of a man. He's the salt of the earth, um, and he's. I mean, uh, he he was. Uh, sort of the backbone operationally of Optech for a long time um, really just like uh, I've never seen people use a spreadsheet like Steve can and um, he 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 did a, a ton of work there um, but yeah the, the whole team uh, was great I, I really didn't do that much I mean I, I was on hand for uh, I don't know some in engineering uh, spieling and uh, did some minor organization but I was really eager to just get back to coding so let's
0: talk about the coding Let's talk about assume UTXL. Um, I'm not going to try and describe it because you're here and you know how to describe this much better than me. I guess let's start. What uh, what made you want to attack this problem? How are you attacking it? And what is the feedback up to this point? Because you, you sent a message to the mailing list, what, March 15th? So it's been out there for a month and a half now? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's, that sounds right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah like so many things in bitcoin it's really not a new idea um people have been talking about it for a while and in fact uh i think i had first heard about it um in the winter of um 2017 um no maybe 2018 in any case um uh, yeah, it, it's kind of funny, Bitcoin, whenever you think you have a new idea, um, just basically search through the mailing list and, you, and you'll find, you know, like <laughs> Peter Todd was talking about it three years ago or something like that. But but in any case, um, uh, I, I had sort of heard about this idea of, um, well, let, let me back up. Let me, let me start talking about, it. for a few months, um, I was kind of doing some performance benchmarking on Bitcoin to try and figure out how we could get some efficiency gains, um, during initial block download, which as the, uh, freaks out there may know is, is probably the most onerous part of, uh, operating a Bitcoin node in terms of just getting synced with the network, um, and validating all the historical blocks and, um, getting brought up to speed, you know, that can take, um, I think basically the floor is like that can take, uh, four hours. Um, but uh the ceiling is is pretty much unbounded based on your hardware, your bandwidth. Um and typically it takes, you know, a few days maybe on consumer hardware and, and a, a moderate internet connection. So um, so that's that's not great and that's a a pretty big impediment to um actually running a full node. So for a while I was, I was, I was kind of like, well, maybe, you know, there, you know, we could, we could flush the caches differently or, you know, we could change some data structure around so that IBD, I don't know, you know, we cut it down by, by 10, 20%. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing some benchmarking and, um, had a few ideas, but, uh, I really thought to myself, like, these are just marginal improvements, you know, a 10, 20% speed up would be nice, but it's, it's not really going to fundamentally, um, change participation in, uh, in running a full node, so, um, you know, we should go back to the drawing board and and really figure out some kind of fundamental improvement that we can make. So, um, yeah, one of the Bitcoin Core meetings, um, the one we had in New York, I think, in uh, early 2018, um, this idea of uh, assume UTXO had been mentioned. And um, the basic idea is that uh, in Bitcoin, when when you do the initial block download, um, you're downloading these these raw block files in the blockchain and you're kind of replaying them um, block by block to generate a view of the um, coins that have not yet been spent. And this is this is basically how you know um, this it's like a quick reference um, for whether or not uh, a coin is spendable um, And um, so the idea of Assume UTXO is, well, if, if we know at a certain height what that set looks like, um, then maybe we can just forward that to a node that's trying to bootstrap um, and then kind of um, uh, assume that it's correct you know, um, with, with uh, some degree of certainty and then back validate it after a while. Um, and uh, that would allow someone to uh, get a full node up and running um, a heck of a lot more quickly than than doing a full initial block download so the obvious objection to this i i, I mean i guess i should pause and then let you do the obvious objection but it's like yeah like you, you know uh checkpoint <laughs> right? <laughs> right right like you, you you i mean it's not intuitive that you can get something for nothing so uh so what's the the trade that we're making here um and i guess to to articulate that trade um we should talk about an existing feature of uh, uh, Bitcoin, which is called assume valid. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, with assume valid, I think that the thought process was pretty similar here. Like we need a a substantial speed up to initial block download. Um, And so uh, what the developers did, I think this this came around in, oh, I won't even try and cite a release number. I think it was 0.15, but I'm not sure. Um, so the idea of assume valid is that um, we specify a certain block hash at a certain height in the code that's um, that indicates uh, that we can assume that for any block that we're validating before that block in the chain, that signatures are correct, and, and so we just don't check the signatures. And um, the idea here is, you know, when I when I first heard about this, I was kind of unnerved. I was like... You know, that sounds really fishy. That sounds like something, you know, you'd, you'd see in Ethereum. Um, but actually, if you stop and think about it for a second, um, it kind of makes sense. Because Bitcoin Core is a really complicated piece of software. And um, almost nobody understands, like, the full set of implications of the, the consensus rule set and how it's implemented in C++. So it's actually a really difficult piece of software to review in its entirety um and what something like assume valid allows you to do is uh it allows you to introduce an optimization like um you know that drastically uh affects the performance of uh, an initial block download process and it and it does so in a way that makes it really easy for for a pseudo technical user to kind of review that it's it's correct because what you can do is you can take uh you know an existing um bitcoin d instance before there was assume valid and you can say, okay, you're claiming that basically the software has validated this block. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double-check that, and so I'm going to run some RPC commands um, and check that the hashes match what you're claiming um, is, uh, is the block that, that my software previous, previously validated. Um, and so, like, almost anybody can do that. Um, and uh, uh, as a result, that security model ends up being a lot easier for um, a non-developer or non-core developer even uh, to verify. Um, uh, does that make any sense? Or, or
0: uh... yeah, it makes sense to me. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I can't I just... speak for the freaks out there, but
1: yeah, yeah, so... yeah. Try and try and channel the freak energy, and you know, <laughs> uh, uh, definitely interject because I feel like I just went on a huge monologue. Yeah. So how?
0: Right? How? Do you come to agree on what hash gets assumed valid and stuff like that? I guess that's probably where the contention comes in: is who is uh, deciding where to, uh, where to place these assumed valid hashes? How are they determined? Who's determining them? Is it done in a redundant way? Is it done in a, a decentralized way? Is there, how much trust is involved is probably the main crux of the issue
1: yeah no that is the crux um and i think it's really really important to understand because almost everybody can actually participate in that process um and uh obviously the more people who do the better um so assume valid uh and assume utxo whenever it comes around if it comes around um, are established through the pull request process on um, the bitcoin core github repository and this is the way that any other software change to bitcoin core is made um, but assume valid is just, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's another piece of code, albeit it's, it's uh, a lot simpler and it's typically updated, um, you know, a few, uh, weeks or months before release. But the idea is that somebody, you know, really anybody can propose, um, assume valid update. And then, um, the way that that pull request is reviewed is, is people come online and they say, um, Yes. Uh, according to my instance of Bitcoin the uh, block hash at this height is uh, is is the hash that you gave or it isn't the hash that you gave what's going on here um, and so because anybody kind of running a, a node at that point can just issue a few RPC commands they can verify that 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 assumed valid values um, uh, actually the right one and how far back in the chain are you looking to go with these typically Um, I mean, you want them to be buried um, pretty significantly to avoid any, um, you know, reorg that would happen in the wild. But to be honest with you, um, that doesn't have to be very deep. I I think, you know, typically you might expect a few weeks worth of blocks. Um, I think the thinking being that if you have a reorg's worth of a few weeks, then, I mean confidence in the system is 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 probably shot anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the point? Um but I think by release time it it like I think in this case we had uh, the last assumed valid update at least a month uh before um this this most recent release was cut. Okay. Um and this is something that's already implemented and it's already in the wild, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's node uses assume valid by default. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it's this the security model is already there. But I think it's it's really worth emphasizing. It's a really kind of profound point in my mind that um this this security this this way of doing optimizations is is good because if, you know, another route that we could we could go is like um well, I I shouldn't say another route, but this is a change to the code that's that's easy for anybody to review Whereas if you're making a really sophisticated change to Bitcoin There are only a few people who can legitimately review that and it would it would be really easy to you know, uh, or I'm um, Relatively easy uh, Compared to something like a constant value to sneak a kind of backdoor into Bitcoin mm-hmm. and so the more Of these changes that you can make kind of simpler and reviewer by a larger set of people the better Um so, so assume valid, and ultimately assume UTXO. I think are are are, are kind of uh, good in that
0: sense. Yeah, you touched on um, comparing comparing this to Ethereum earlier. I guess uh, a lot of people like to compare this to Get Fast Sync or something. How is this different to something like that?
1: Yeah, so I'm not very familiar with Get Fast Sync, but I think Get Fast Sync does um, an analogous thing where they basically uh, retrieve. Um, like a snapshot of the state tree or, you know, whatever it is in Ethereum. Um, but crucially, they, they don't back validate that snapshot. And I'm actually um, unfamiliar with, with who they retrieve it from and how they retrieve it from. And we can get into um, how we're, how we're planning to do that in assume UTXO because it's kind of interesting and I think has some pretty good security properties. Um, but uh, fundamentally they, they never actually go, go through and, replay all of the blocks to, to validate that the snapshot that they received um, is legitimate. And we actually do that in, in the assume UTXO proposal. So the way that works is that um, you load one of these UTXO snapshots and um, then you'll have a little bit of syncing to do just to get to the network tip because there might be, you know, a few uh, weeks or months um, since uh, the snapshot was actually cut. Um, so you have a little bit of syncing to do, but hopefully that shouldn't take you know more than an hour. Um, but then after that syncing completes, you know you you have an operational wallet um, and for for many purposes it's it's just sort of a regular Bitcoin node that's that's fully synced and fully validating. But then in the background, um, we're simultaneously doing the initial block download um, for the purposes of uh, getting to the base of where the snapshot started. Um, just to check that that everything is good, and so in some ways this is actually an, um, an improvement on assume valid because we could disable assume valid while we're doing this initial block download in the background, um, and actually verify all the signatures if if you wanted to. I don't, I'm not really sure if there's a strong argument for doing that, um,
0: but you could. And so, I guess with the adversarial thinking here, where. In this assume UTXO model, in my mind, like, is it most vulnerable, like, right after the UTXO set or snapshot is cut? And then, so basically, the, the attack vector here is assumed attack vector vector is if you're using these, these uh, assume UTXO and you get the IBD uh, done quickly and you wait for the chain to validate in the background, is that is before the chain gets validated, transactions that you make based off those snapshots have the potential to be fed bad block editors or something, correct? Yep,
1: yep. So the, the the practical attack here is if you were to download a Bitcoin version that was, say, compiled by someone else or, you know, from um, um, from some source that isn't bitcoin.org um, and someone had hard-coded in um, a specially constructed assume ETXO hash that pointed to... Um, a UTXO snapshot that they had specifically crafted to say contain you know a coin that wasn't theirs. Um, so uh, that would uh, that would be the only way that you could really attack this. Um, and recall that you know if if you if you download an untrusted version of Bitcoin that you either haven't compiled yourself or um, you know that doesn't have uh, Gideon signatures on it then really any kind of change could be made. So, um so basically the the threat model there is is pretty much equivalent to to what we have today.
0: And there's no trade-off seems to be some added benefits in sped up IBD. Like what how long do you think do you do you think as the person who has uh has proposed this proposal that it has any chance of getting merged in and if so, what will the process look like?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think of the longtime contributors that I've talked to, there's, uh, there's been pretty good reception so far. And I think the way we're going to approach this is, is to do it in slow phases. Um, so to start off with, there's, there's a good deal of refactoring work that needs to be done for this um, in order to support the, the background validation stuff. And it's refactoring work that, honestly, we should probably do anyway because it makes the code more testable, a little bit more, you know, modularized. Um, so um, I've already done a good deal of that. And um, I think we're going to start to, I'm going to start to propose that stuff for merge, um, which again, are, are kind of good changes in themselves. Um, and so um, the first phase of assuming TXO, if, if it's kind of adopted is, we're going to introduce use of the UTXO snapshots into the RPC interface. So we're not going to transmit snapshots over the network. We're not going to do anything different by default, but if you're a sort of sophisticated user and you want to try out the snapshot stuff, um, then you have the RPC interface to do so. Um, and, uh, we're going to hard code the uh, assume ETXO valid in the code. Um, um, and unlike assume valid, we're not going to allow you to, to specify that via command line argument because there are, for for the reason I just kind of described earlier in terms of the attack vector, we really don't want people to to sort of play around with this assume utxo value.
0: Yeah. So I guess another contention that Bitcoiners will have too is that uh, they probably don't want this by default because I believe, I I'm not going to name names, but I, uh, some people have said that this uh, may lead to some complacency. Um, and people like just depending on this IBD uh, in mass, but I think if you're downloading the chain, validating the chain in the background, does that make that that argument sort of void?
1: Yeah, it does. I uh, to to a large extent. Um, but I think so. That's like so. The RPC thing is is phase one, um, and that's going to allow us to really think about this stuff and and, and give it a lot of time. Um, not only to to sort of uh, be used to some extent in the wild, but, you know, for the the development community to really stew on it. Um, And then uh, afterwards, uh, the the next phase of this thing would be actually having every node... um, Well, maybe not every node, maybe it would be optional, but um, having nodes generate snapshots and then transmit them over the peer-to-peer network so that if you're a node and you want to come online... Um, you would connect to the peer-to-peer network you would get your chain of headers um, and then you would re- you would request um, the most recent snapshot from your peers and um, we've come up with a way that we could do this which is kind of neat where basically we would split these snapshots into very fine chunks um, and we would use something called erasure coding to um, expand out the snapshots into a slightly larger, Piece of data that we could split into chunks, but that would allow us to basically um, retrieve the snapshots from all of your different peers, um, kind of in a, in a sort of like BitTorrent esque way, where you're reconstructing a single snapshot from a bunch of different pieces of data that you get from all your all your peers, mm-hmm. um, and so that that you know should should not only kind of take some burden off of the network, but you know, give you assurance that um, you're not relying on a single peer, or, or you can't be dosed by a single peer trying to get a snapshot.
0: It's possible to sybil this process.
1: Sure, but only so far as like you know, you could sybil a regular Bitcoin node. You know, mm-hmm. um, you you could easily, if if you wanted to to sybil uh, uh, a node coming online um, today, uh, you could as long as you feed it a headers, headers chain that contains all the existing checkpoints, um, which are which are relatively low height. So um, there's really no change from that standpoint.
0: Yeah. I'm just trying to think through adversarially here. Um, yeah, why do you think this is scary for a lot of people?
1: Um, it probably feels like something for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably feels like, why haven't we done this before? Ethereum's doing
0: this. Um, I just I'm just having flashbacks to Andres Brecken freaking out the Bitcoin Cash team when they well, this isn't a checkpoint, but like I think this is what people think of as like Bitcoin Cash implementing their checkpoint like near the chain tip and yeah. being like we should not be doing anything like that or something. Like yeah, that. and that is truly crazy because that let's explain why that's crazy and how this is different then. Yeah, so if <laughs>
1: if 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 you wanted to create uh, a hard fork in a chain that was doing checkpointing near the tip um, then basically you could just do a reorg that's longer than the checkpointing and and uh, and and really wreak some havoc there um, so like we're not you know I, I think that's that's very drastic I think it's worth noting that something like assume EtXO and assume valid they are not restricting other chains from being valid they are just saying hey you know, in this software project, we previously validated this chain. If, if you want to come up with another, like, high work chain that, um, that uh, you know, that, that at least includes the checkpoints, we're not going to preclude that on the basis of assume valid or assume UTXO. We're just saying kind of like uh, as a software project, this is the chain that we've previously validated. Um, so it's, it's unlike checkpointing near the tip, which really dictates like okay, there is a single chain that that we all trust, um, and this is it, and anything else is invalid mm-hmm.
0: um, which is nuts no, so I think it's important to draw distinctions between that that way of uh, that way of I don't want to say checkpointing like that way of doing things versus an uh, assume UTXO model um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm that's what it, because there's a lot of nuance to this stuff right and that's uh as yeah. some, and as you were describing earlier bitcoin core repository is a code base that no one man can probably fully understand and um, it's exceedingly
1: complex it's yeah. it is it's it's kind of funny because like the if you think about it from a software perspective like the actual interface of what a bitcoin node does is is pretty simple you know it kind of like takes in these blocks and and maybe emit some transactions and acts as a relay for transactions. Like conceptually, the interface is, is pretty simple. And one of the first like Bitcoin related things that I did was kind of replicate the Bitcoin interface in, in Python in a project called uh, Tiny Chain. Um, just kind of for my own education. Um, so it's a pretty simple thing. But uh, the defense mechanisms that Bitcoin has evolved... Over the years and like uh, sort of the optimizations that it, that have been um, necessarily adopted make it like a toweringly complex
0: piece of software
1: um, and uh like the the
0: let me just interject here is it, do you think it's the social layer making it more complex or is it the technical interoperability of the code base as well
1: it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things it, it's it's um Unlike other software projects in that, you know, typically when you join a software project, one great way to learn the code base is to make a bunch of refactoring changes and make, make everything, um, you know, make a bunch of sort of, sort of cosmetic trivial changes, um, that, that are, you know, good improvements. Um, but they're not like totally critical. Um, in Bitcoin that just doesn't happen because every single change is, is needs to be extremely scrutinized and changing wide swaths of code for, um, reasons of you know style or cosmetics just isn't defensible and so as a result you know the the um changes that are made to bitcoin are extremely conservative and satoshi uh you know genius that he was uh you know probably didn't realize like the magnitude of what he was writing at the time and so you know i mean didn't structure the software in in the best way so it's you know bit by bit we're kind of making um these uh, architectural improvements to Bitcoin, but there are still a lot of them to be made, and they're kind of hard to make because the the, the review
0: process is so onerous. It was, uh, I believe, Francis Paulette uh, shared the original source code of Bitcoin uh, on Twitter, I believe, uh, a few months ago, and he found it on Bitcoin Talk, a Bitcoin Talk thread from, like, 2013, but somebody had access and reviewed like the Bitcoin source core well, source code before the Genesis block was launched and shared it on Bitcoin talk.org. And you go through and you see like Satoshi trying to describe everything. And you could tell he was just like, I think this will work. I think this will work. And it yeah. seems like we're, uh, we're, uh, we're sort of, I mean, obviously it does work. It's 10 years in production at this point, but still making it as streamlined and, and like you said, re-architecting it uh, is a big, is a big task that we've been burdened with.
1: Yeah, 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 and it's—I mean—it's—it's—it's a piece of software that's totally the product of like very adversarial evolution. It is a battle-hardened piece of software. Like it's—it's—it is a Bitcoin Core is very reliable, but it's very ugly. You know, (laughs) it's like it's like uh, a sort of like Frankenstein raised by wolves. Um, And I, Frankenstein raised by wolves. I I, love that. Yeah, I have uh, a huge amount of respect for it um, because it it humbles you you know it, it, when you when you start to work on it um, because your like petty stylistic changes uh, just are not what it needs you know um, so it's a approaching it as a software engineer is is a really interesting experience because it it does tend to violate a lot of your intuition about how software projects work
0: Have you ever been close to rage quitting?
1: um like micro rage quits i've definitely micro rage quit on some prs before Um, Mm -hmm. i actually one one change that was just merged um was adding uh thread names to uh, deadlock uh debugging tools and um, logging and when i initially proposed that like i don't know i spent like two three months in review just kind of like addressing feedback and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I, this, this isn't essential. Like I've got other stuff to do, but, but I kept needing it for some of this benchmarking stuff and, and some, some uh, parallelism or uh, some um, concurrency uh, debugging stuff. Um, So I I finally brought it back, but it's, yeah, it's, it, I I guess the whole thing requires patience, but it's kind of easy when you realize, um, how important it is that, that the process be done right, you know?
0: Yeah, we were, uh, when we met at the coffee shop earlier this morning. We were chit chatting about, um, Russ Janosky and, uh, his, uh, his stoicness and, and, the refactor hell that he got stuck in for a couple of years or is still stuck in, right? Russ is,
1: uh, a personal hero of mine. I, I love Russ. Like, he, he's just one of the best guys ever. I mean, talk about, you know, um, gems of bitcoin uh russ is one of them um this is this is a guy who um you know worked on google search he um implemented R values in c++ which is a huge deal um and yet he like (laughs) he he has no qualms he happily does grunt work a bunch of tedious like grindy near janitorial like maintenance of his of his pull requests um for years on end with with no light at the end of the tunnel and he just sits there and grinds and and he is like um he's he's just a champion i i i uh uh, walking into work every day and getting to, to see a guy
0: like russ is just like a delight so we've talked about it before on this podcast with Carl Carl Dong when he was here a couple of months ago but i think it's uh, advantageous for us to sort of redescribe what Roy's doing or not Roy Russ is doing um and Russ is trying to basically separate the the wallet GUI from the node correct
1: yeah 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 so like i was saying you know um uh, Satoshi's design of the code uh, was extremely monolithic it's like kind of a big ball of mud every everything's kind of um mixed together uh, and, and we've made some pretty big strides even since then, like um, blue mat separating out main.cpp into validation, and that processing was a big step in the right direction. Russ is, is doing a kind of um, fundamental change in that spirit, um, and he's trying to actually separate Bitcoin out into separate processes so that you have sort of a consensus layer, um, you know, which is Bitcoin as we know it, and that runs in one process. And then you have things like the wallet, and the user interface running in separate processes. So if we get there, um, that's really gonna be great for the project because not only will it allow the user interface and the wallet to, to iterate faster than uh, the the consensus layer, but it'll it'll give us confidence that, you know, when we're changing something in one part of the code, it's not going to spill over and affect um, the really important stuff that the node's doing. Um, so that's critical work and he's he's, I think he filed the first PR for that, like in late 2016 or early 2017. And he's just been carving off pieces of it and getting it merged since then. And he does so, you know, without ever complaining, um, and like reviewing everybody else's code, um, all the while. So, so Russ is really the guy that you want leading a change like that. Um, uh, and he's really proven himself, I think to the Bitcoin community and, um, and I, I couldn't be happier that, uh, he's involved in the project and, and, uh, working on that in particular.
0: The epitome of a servant leader, if you will.
1: Russ is a philosopher King. Yeah. He's, he's, he's great, man. Uh, uh, he's totally going to hate that I'm blowing him up on this podcast, but, uh, that's okay.
0: Russ, come blow yourself up on this podcast. So we hear <laughs> from you. Official invite sent over the airwaves. Um, and I'll reach out in person, of course, but uh no, it's fascinating. what's it like working in that shankolet la- labs there's a there's a bunch of personalities in there
1: there are a bunch of personalities in there uh everybody's a personality there um it's great I love it 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 really um it it's the only reason I tolerate New York City um, <laughs> which I sort of love hate um, we all
0: love hate the city
1: yeah it's very it's very uh schizophrenic um it was a really hard transition for me because um before I worked on Bitcoin um I worked uh for a time at uh NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um coming out of school when I kind of thought I was uh I was going to go into applied math or, you know, <clears throat> maybe academia. Ew. Ew. Yeah. Dude, Go back and can imagine and and was tell, an academic. tell like two thousand eight James you because i i mean i I guess I didn't get too deep into it but um i I quickly found out that was not where i where I wanted to be um and so I had this job at NIST working with some material scientists on um, a, 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 a partial differential equation solver package which sounds really complex but really it's just it's it's a lot of matrix algebra so I was working on this thing, and it was a, it was a great project. I really love the people that I work with. Um, John Geyer, the guy who runs uh, this thing. PhiPi is, is a personal hero of mine. So that was really cool, but it, it was it was a very researchy-based environment. It was very free form, and um, it was kind of hard for me to just sort of work in a vacuum without I, – I really missed having, like, demands from customers because that provides a sort of clarity when you're working. You're like, oh, these people need this thing. Um, I'll do it and then you know get a, a pat on the back or whatever make some people happy um, when you're doing research it's it's way less structured um, and so coming out of that I was like all right I'm never I'm never going to do a PhD I'm never gonna 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 sort of be in a research position um, but uh, little did I know that you know someday I'd end up at Chaincode and, and Chaincode's very researchy and it's very self-directed and um, for me that was that was a pretty jarring adjustment because i was kind of used to acting um oftentimes very tactically and then and then maybe once in a while coming up with something very strategic to do um so i had i had to adjust to that and it was really uh it was hard especially when you're surrounded by incredibly brilliant people you know um uh but uh but it's awesome i i, I mean i don't know i really love bitcoin and um and I really want the project to succeed. And so it's kind of easy
0: to come up with stuff to do. Um, no, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible what Alex and Suhas are doing by just basically bankrolling all this too. So I guess on the subject of chain code and let's quote unquote dev incentives, um, what do you think of the state of Bitcoin if we need people like Alex and Suhas uh, to sort of bankroll you guys to write code?
1: That's a really hard question. Um I guess, though, I'm kind of uh, encouraged by the fact that it seems um, to be pretty finely dispersed across uh, a lot of companies and patrons at this point. Um, Square Crypto jumping into the fray? Yeah. Yeah, Square Crypto, um, you know, places like Fidelity hiring up a a lot of good engineers. Almost every company that we talk to um, uh, during the Bitcoin Ops uh, stuff. Uh, w- would say like, yeah, if, if you know of a core developer, just throw them over to us. Like we want to hire somebody. Um, so I think there's a ton of interest and there's a ton of recognition in Bitcoin that without the open source, I, the open source component is everything. And Bitcoin doesn't exist without a robust community of you know serious engineers working on this stuff. So I think because that's, that's really widely acknowledged, um, uh I I'm pretty hopeful and I think, you know, if it wasn't an Al- if if it wasn't Alex and Suhas, I mean I'm sure glad it, it's them. But um if it wasn't them, you know, there 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 would be other people.
0: Why are you glad it's them? I mean,
1: I, I don't wanna gush too much on my uh on my uh, um you know, my Bitcoin cohort on this podcast. I feel like this is me just dispense especially, you know, when it's like when it's my bosses, but um I really I love those guys. They're, they, they just have their heads on so straight. And, um, it's really kind of rare that you find somebody in life, or at least it's rare for me. Um, where I find someone who's like kind of at, at the next stage of life, you know, these guys like, um, they're, they have kids and stuff. And, um, actually, I don't know. I don't, don't want to dox them too hard, but the point is that I really, I really look up to them and, and they're just, um, they're doing really, really cool things and they have done really cool things. And, uh, they're inspiring to work with because they they're they're kind of intelligence that um that uh a lot of the chain code guys are just the level of smart where it's almost um it's almost unbelievable and I I think I get by a lot on kind of hard work and persistence and I mean I'm I'm a decently smart guy but like these guys are just a completely another don't undersell yourself James (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they're great. Um, I really like working for them because I, I I look up to them in a lot of ways.
0: No, yeah, it's for the pleasure of meeting Alex and having lunch uh, at Chinook. I believe last summer it was an incredible experience. Getting to see his his fuck the man mentality uh, it was incredible. To that is to our unofficial
1: tagline. You know, we yeah. can't circulate it too widely. I want to make some shirts that sort of embed that somehow in, a, in mm-hmm. a subtle way. But yeah, that's that's our tagline.
0: No, but that's uh, no, it's a topic of conversation that comes up like blockstream build a board, chain code trying to hire these people to implement code to overtake bitcoin or whatever like, there's those conspiracy theories out there but it's like come on people like and i think square crypto entering the fray like you were describing like fidelity asking for developers going around bitcoin optech other companies asking for developers i think again there's more companies joining the fray and it, it took companies like blockstream and Chaincode to sort of hold the torch and prove prove the way for for others to get comfortable with this type of model um so, like, there's obviously skepticisms inherent in the Bitcoin community, and some people have skepticism towards these companies. It's like, this is what you want. Like, and I think, I've been saying this a lot more recently, I think Bitcoin hitting a decade of production, 10 years, is psychologically big for, like, the squares of the world, the incumbents of the world to be like, all right, this is worth us investing in, in developers and stuff. So, I'm happy that chain code exists to sort of prove the way.
1: Totally, yeah. And, I mean, as, as the system represents more value, more and more people are going to want engineering stakeholders involved you know um and so uh is this pure is (laughs) this pure enough (laughs) i mean yeah so so people are going to want technical people to show up on their behalf and it's going to happen and the money's going to come in and i mean this thing this thing yeah will be um uh irrevocably kind of
0: decentralized i hate that word but No, but it's every PR, no matter if it's coming from Chaincode or Blockstream or Square Crypto, has to go through a review process. It's not like yeah, they just get to push shit through. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. But to so,
1: so to bring it back to Assume UTXO a little <laughs> bit, a little bit, and talking about kind of centralization um, a little bit, a little bit, uh, I think one of the really cool use cases for Assume UTXO is for a sort of point-of-sale commercial type thing mm-hmm. where... Um. So one road that we're kind of going down here is the sort of Casa or BTC Pay Server Fast Sync approach, where basically
0: somebody is just like preloading a node with their data dir. Yeah, I forgot to I forgot to bring that up earlier. That's what Nicholas Drouyer hopped in the comments of your email chain, uh, highlighting BTC Pay Server solution.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I I think that's a really dangerous road to go down. Why is this? Well, if you buy your Casa node, or you buy your, you know, or you download your your BTC Pay server instance, and you accept from them a a data directory and code that you're taking for granted, you're you're placing tr- complete trust in them, and we don't want that, right? Um, obviously, you have to trust the Bitcoin Core repository because like that's the code that you're running, but you really want to try and avoid trusting anybody else um and by trust bitcoin core i mean you know like you can verify the signatures or or uh, or the code or whatever but like as soon as you start to have these different points especially if they're if they're not public companies you know in the case of casa and you're just kind of taking a data dir from them and a bitcoin d executable like that's really
0: dangerous why is it more dangerous the fact that they're not a public company
1: Oh, just if you can't see the code, you know, with with BTC Pay server, you you might be able to see the scripts that they're using to generate the data, or you might be able to um, kind of validate signatures on the on the data directory. But
0: oh, I thought you meant like publicly traded companies need to uh, need to share more data or something like that.
1: Oh no, 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 no. Um, talking
0: about like open source projects.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being able to look at the code and 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 you know, verifying for yourself what's going on if you want to. But so the. The issue with the BTCPay server fasting stuff is that basically it's like a zip file signed by Nicholas Dorier and co um, that you just kind of trust. And, and even to, to trust them, you then have to validate the signatures on that data, which users are notorious for not doing. I don't,
0: think, I don't think I've ever validated a signature.
1: It's honestly hard. Like <laughs> it's it's every time I have to do it I'm like oh god cuz you got to import the GPG key and then you might have to like manually adjust the trust. I mean it's it's laughably hard to do. I don't I don't know why it has to be that. I mean I don't know. But but the point is that that we we really want to avoid a situation like that. So we we want to build something in to Bitcoin that, that is safe. Um, and I think assume ETXO can do that. And so I think
0: it, it, it becomes a really compelling option going forward. Do you think companies like BTC pay server and Casa would be a, more open to this than the solutions that they've had to create? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Cause it's easier for them. I mean, they don't have to then maintain some hacky script that goes through and sanitizes a data dir and, you know, make sure if, if it's just, configuration options they pass into Bitcoin. That's a heck of a lot easier um, on their end for sure. Imagine a lot less stress as well. But yeah, you can imagine like a small business owner saying, okay, you know, I want to accept Bitcoin payments or oh, I got to set up my Bitcoin node. So, you know, they buy a piece of hardware and, you know, it does the UTXO snapshot initialization. And then over the course of the next week or whatever, they do a full validation, right? They can then fully validate that they, they, they have a block and, and then you, you know, you have um, another full node on the network that's serving historical blocks. And um, I think that could be a really good thing. Do you think
0: people who IDB with assume UTXO become targets mm, for the um, period between validation?
1: Uh, again, it's that's contingent. I mean, it's a good question because, you know, we got to think adversarially about the stuff. but. It's, it's really contingent on getting the user to accept a bad assume etxo value, mm-hmm. which, which you just can't do unless you recompile Bitcoin, you know. Like, you, you apply someone else's change to your Bitcoin source code, then you recompile, then you run that. Like, that's, you know, as soon as someone's asking you to change source code, like, that should be a big, uh, big red flag, because they could be asking you to do anything. So, I don't see any reason why assume etxo users would be targeted... You know any more than anybody else I'm
0: just trying to think of how you could like prove that how hard this is Could you prove how hard this is by like trying to attack it?
1: Um, I I, I think in many ways it's like trying to attack assume valid right now in fact mm-hmm. Assume valid is potentially easier to attack because it, there's that command line flag there where you can say oh Just start up your Bitcoin D node with like, you know, these these flags and you sneak an a, a assume valid value in there Um But then even then, you know, you need to basically sybil the node so that it doesn't retrieve the most work headers chain from the network and then feed it a chain of blocks that includes the checkpoints and your bad block, um, which, you know, requires a lot of work. So, um, yeah, it's really there's really not uh, an attack. When I started this, I mean, I I almost started this as an investigation. Um, It was half an excuse for me to make a really substantial change to Bitcoin because that's really the only way I learn the innards of something. I I, th- I think some people can just like stare at a, a, so- a piece of software for a long time and understand it. I have to make changes. And so um, I started this as a way to do that as well as a way to investigate this idea that other people had, you know, other, other sort of gray beards in the project had, had uh, talked favorably about checking out. And so graybeards. Um, <laughs> the gray beards of Bitcoin, they're real, man. Um, <laughs> that's I, Again, like I don't want to, I don't need to shill Bitcoin to um, or sh- shill Bitcoin development culture to listeners of Tales from the Crypt. I'm sure, but maybe it helps to hear that um, I, I've had a few jobs in the software industry and, and a few jobs at some some places I'm really proud to have worked at. Um, but nowhere else do you find guys like Greg Maxwell who are in there, you know, who who have decades of experience doing this stuff. Um, with just a sort of intrinsic um, uh, aptitude for designing security critical systems, I've never I've never encountered a group of engineers more capable and competent in my life. Um, and it's it, that's that's I mean that's a lot of what drew me to Bitcoin initially is I saw the quality of people working on it, and I was just like, this is completely unparalleled um, as far as I'm aware.
0: Yeah, that's what makes me. Again, going back to skepticism, very skeptical of of any uh, Bitcoin usurper coming out of the blue, and uh, and thinking as adversarially as as the Bitcoin core team has up to this point, and and sort of replicating the the uh, carefulness with which the project is approached. Totally,
1: uh, you know. Um I know that Bitcoin allegedly has like the seven magic network effects or whatever that Trace Mayer talks about, which i you know i like I like hearing, but you know I don't know anything about markets, I don't know anything about oh we're going to get into your market thoughts in a second <laughs> here you you got i I, I hope things. for the listeners' sake that we don't but uh, <laughs> um i you know but I do know about software engineering and and that is really the network effect in bitcoin that i that I watch and um it would be evident to me if, if there were um, if there was another project that came along that really had some kind of critical mass that 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 concern, you know kind of made me think okay well there's a real kind of challenge here but there are really in my mind just just is not
0: what's uh, what's the repository looking like these days? How many people are joining in the uh, the review? Um, is there a lot more contributors? I saw the contributor list that went out with the version 0.18 release. It seemed like there was more than a hundred names on it.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's sizable. I think there are some really promising new people coming on board. Um, there's, there's a French guy named Antoine Rial who, uh, had been contributing to, um, Bitcoin rust for a while and he's kind of getting into the mix. Um, but again, I mean, there's always a scarcity of really, really qualified people who can do very effective review. The most, the most that we can hope for at this point is that we're starting to seed those kind of people. Um, and so, like, I'm I'm kind of on my journey, you know, getting getting to that to that place um, with certain parts of the code, um, but uh, I I think you know there's there's increasing interest. Um, there are even more people coming along. You do you do find people who come along and um, start. You know, everybody starts with sort of maybe superficial observations or changes or reviews to Bitcoin, and that's okay. You just got you got to get familiar somehow. Um, so I think we've definitely seen an uptick in that regard, but. um gray beards are slow to emerge. You
0: know? <laughs> and uh, I think it would be remiss of us if we did not mention the fact that uh, John Noberry for the next couple of weeks is running a, a PR review club, I believe Wednesdays for the next few weeks.
1: Oh yeah, on IRC, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you freaks out there who want to get involved in the review process, go check that out. Um, I kind of hope he starts to do like a a video call style thing because I just intuitively to me, that seems a little bit more high bandwidth
0: than than doing i r c yeah. but it seems like its It's like the ethereum calls, which which are I guess that's a good point yeah they they never seem like organized to me
1: but review is review is just very nuanced and very hard, and i I imagine he's going to be doing a
0: lot of typing so. Yeah, that's what John. I was gonna say. How do you do like a review club in IRC? Like typing all that out—it that sounds terrible. It's yeah, it's. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> gonna be terrible. It's
1: it's a signif- <laughs> significant, act of charity on John's part. So I, I hope it's successful. But damn, man, I would I would fire up a you you know, get, maybe in like an audio stream or something. You need to get
0: Brian Bishop up here or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Get cyborg Conjure to do the transcription. Uh, you yeah, uh, know, another thing about him—he's really into ge- um, genetics and gene hacking and stuff. He's—he's uh, he's an interesting
0: follow. Check check out Conjure if you—if you don't already. No, I really, uh, yeah, cause he's actually got uh, talks from before Bitcoin, talking about gene stuff, genetic stuff, correct? What yeah, he know? really
1: knows his stuff. I yeah. I worked in biotechnology briefly uh, for uh, about two years in um, uh, doing doing gene. Um, gene diagnostics basically at a lab in uh, California and so I, I have like a little bit of I, I have enough background to know that
0: he seems to know what he's talking about yeah man, a, a well-rounded renaissance man Brian Bishop truly it's, truly um, speaking of renaissance what's going on in the world right now are we are we in the midst of a renaissance are we in the midst of a of the world crumbling around us? This? this is something that James and I when we meet up outside the podcast we talk a lot about his macro themes geopolitics what the hell is going on in the world what's going on with the central banks how much money's being printed will it ever stop uh we had an update to that conver- ongoing conversation this morning at the coffee shop and i think uh i think your perspective is interesting i think it's uh, a good one to put out there for the freaks too like what you're worried about what you're looking at your theories the binariness of bitcoin's potential um so let's jump into that yeah um binaryness a word it should be mm-hmm. <laughs> it it can be for us <laughs> Um, Binary nature. Yeah,
1: I, I I'm kind of a perma bear. I think I've always been a perma bear. I I remember in in high school coming home, um, really drunk and sitting down at the kitchen table with my dad, and I and I started weeping. I think about the fall of capitalism or something. <laughs> um, As we all have. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so it's hard for me sometimes to to disentangle my own um, maybe uh, bias economically. Bias pessimistic bias nature yeah it's weird i I kind of fight with myself a lot because i in many ways i'm a very optimistic person and i'm 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 very enthusiastic about you know the the possibilities of life and so forth but uh i've really (laughs) i've really been pretty bearish on um on things for a few years here um but recently i think um i've grown even more bearish and and I've, i've grown alarmed um Oh God! I mean, there's there's a, I guess no no shortage of a uh, of alarm on the internet, um, and I'm now adding to it because um, uh, ever since um, the the Fed um, basically reversed their sort of hawkish approach, um,
0: beginning of this year. Beginning of this year went from two hikes this year to zero. To zero,
1: yeah. It's a, a, and almost implied, you know, rate cuts uh, at some point um or or additional you know um uh quantitative easing measures but a- anyway i guess like before we get into this uh i'm just if, if bitcoin didn't exist i don't know if i'd be able to get up in the morning you know it's like <laughs>
0: think things I are hear that a lot man why why do you think that is is, is bitcoin that mu- like are we crazy to think that bitcoin is can solve some of these problems
1: I think it certainly can. I think it's an open question of whether it will. Um, actually, I'm not in question about that. I think it, it will. It's just kind of a matter of on what time scale. You know, it might take, I don't know, it could take 100 years or, or more. I, I, I think that people who benefit from the system as it exists now, namely people who are well-connected to the banking system, um, people in, in, entrenched in various parts of government uh, definitely have an interest in keeping this this party rolling for as long as they possibly can. Um, but I I think that there is a certain gravity to a sound money system, and um, this 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 really wasn't something that I had thought a ton about before um, getting into Bitcoin. But um, <laughs> I. It kind of blows my mind that that we've really only been um, in a fiat money experiment, you know, since the 70s. And and most people don't realize that. I didn't realize that for sure. Um, Generation and a half. Yeah. And, you know, in that span of time, we've seen some insane uh, uh, economic uh, exuberance um, and subsequent bust. And, And I don't think that we've seen... I don't think that we've really that that all the chickens have yet come home to roost. Um, Certainly not. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think the fiat money experiment is um, is is really wild. Just basically the idea that the government has um, the discretion to just kind of expand the money supply, and 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 I- as a result of doing so, devalue the savings of anyone who has bothered you know, to have a low time preference and set aside some savings. Um, I I think that's criminal, but it's not well understood by most people, which is, is really kind of the the fundamentally scary thing to me is, is that there's a total divergence between there's a collective ignorance. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it kind of mirrors the wealth inequality in the sense that there are a few people who, who know what's going on, you know, who are kind of tuned into what the function of the fed is and, Indeed, like what even the M2 or you know or M1 money supply like means and represents, and how that affects um, businesses and savings and 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 people's lives. And then there's you know so that's maybe like I don't know, say five percent of the population, if that. And then there's the other ninety-five percent who are just kind of like subject to all this and going along and not really thinking about it. Um, and, and they're drastically affected by this stuff. Right.
0: Um, you yeah, know you have to do is look at some statistics uh suicide attempts opiate addiction uh bankruptcy like th- things are f- i mean we've been saying this for a while Like you said our permable permable excuse me permabare perma i have very similar uh thoughts as well and have had very similar thoughts for for the better part of a decade now almost um but you're but like when i wrote about in the bent last week i think you actually responded and we had like a little email conversation about it is like this debt fueled society basically sows the seeds of its own destruction over time cuz again we, we i tied that to like birth rate like birth rate acro- across the world's going down like kids aren't having kids anymore you're seeing a japanification of the world play out in real time and what this does we can tie this into a bunch of things and we will but the one thing that i talked about in the bent in particular is like Again, the, the debt-fueled society sows the seeds of its own destruction because it forces people to to basically weigh opportunity costs, and it's gotten to a point where the opportunity cost is breeding and having kids because people are going into so much debt and they can't buy houses. They have to pay back their, their student loans, so they're forced to choose, like, can I even afford to have a kid right now? And a lot of people are saying, no, I can't. We used to have a society before, we went off the gold standard where you could have one, a single single parent provide for the whole family now you you have most of america where both parents have been forced into the workplace many times since two or three jobs and uh not even many parents many people like many many singles many individuals and it's literally becoming to a point where this this debt-fueled system which relies on more people pumping more consumption and more money into it is sort of destroying itself because it's not allowing itself to create a base to sort of keep that going at a certain point. So maybe that's when the ultimate uh doom that we've been feeling inherently for the last decade comes to comes to fruition is when that generational shift happens and you literally don't have somebody to foot the bill.
1: Yeah, you absolutely tied together uh a bunch of different elements there that that I've been thinking about a lot.
0: Um I really gotta go to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. We're bathroom right. break. We're one yeah, one ten twenty five.
1: I think exactly in the, in the way that you're saying, there's this short termism induced by um, the the behavior of the Fed in terms of expanding the monetary base. Um, people focus on consumption because why wouldn't you if your value is quickly eroding? And as a result of the increasing price of the really important stuff that we all need to live, like real estate, for example, or healthcare, Education. Education. You know, everybody has to work all the time. And we have to work at these jobs that that <laughs> kind of indicate like malinvestment. I mean, look at Uber and Lyft's financials. Just go to
0: any WeWork and walk around.
1: Right. Well, check out what people are working on. Like, sorry, you're, if you're in a
0: WeWork right now, I'm sorry. But there's <laughs> a lot of... Yeah, it's not you. There's it's a ton, ton of malinvestment going on out there. Right.
1: I mean, we should, we should be thinking about how to build more affordable housing and not like, uh, I don't know how to, how to create yet another like e-commerce fashion platform. Not that there's anything per se wrong with that, but I I just think there's a lot of frothy, um, stuff going on, but, um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think it creates a sort of short termism and that debases people's sense of purpose really, because, you just kind of lapse into this like hedonism where you're you're all about like food or trying the newest restaurant cloud chasing, yeah yeah exactly exactly and and so I think like when I say the reason I get up in the morning is is bitcoin it's 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 because um well primarily I see bitcoin as an antidote to this, but at a kind of like straussian level um bitcoin is something that has long term value and purpose, you know and it, it it's it's kind of the antithesis of uh Oh, I'm just waiting until the next, like, uh, delicious meal at the latest trendy
0: restaurant. You know, um, Peter, I watched uh, recently this week, Jeremy Welch, breakfast with him recently. He recommended this Peter Thiel video. He went to some college with Cornell West and basically had a Q&A with the students and touched on what you just did. Like, we've, we're turning into, like, an economy built on, like, new e-commerce platforms and new websites, basically. It's, like, built on basically just creating visual and ux flows it's nothing like nothing crazy is being produced we're not going to mars we're not mining asteroids, shit yeah. like that a lot of it's and, window dressing yeah exactly it's all window dressing and it's scary it's scary. like what are are we stuck in this sort of state of treading water and mediocrity and and just trying to again it's what we would i would what i would argue is that we're stuck in this this system that's forced us to create these shitty jobs and i think that's what we're getting into in this this part of discussion right now but like how do we get out of it like that's that's how do you unwind this this malinvestment to unwind it I, i think you
1: have to have a renewed list of priorities about what's worth focusing on as an individual um and um I, I've actually been listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson lately uh, who, who's I, I think a wonderful thinker um, and he's particularly fascinating because before I actually started listening to him I had always heard these kind of like shadowy nefarious like like that he had some reputation I was like oh, okay this guy's like a secret racist or he's you know he's like in the alt-right or something like that and then I actually started listening to him and I was like this guy just makes a ton of sense and he has no you know
0: wake up and make my bed every morning
1: yeah well, you've you've set your house in order, Marty. Um, Marty has a beautiful apartment, by the way. Um, Thank you, James. But um, I I really like his take on basically load yourself up with as much responsibility as you possibly can, because pursuing happiness in life um, is is not a good aim. He argues, and I mean, there's a semantic game you can play there, where you know, depending on how you define happiness, maybe it is a worthwhile end. But I th- I think the point is is to basically put responsibility on yourself and start thinking about things that are very long-term. To to get back to like the macro end of of our discussion, um, my prediction is that central banks um, will continue with quantitative easing. They'll continue buying assets. They'll continue their open market operations. They'll continue expanding the money supply in effect Um, because as soon as they stop that, then the level of corporate debt, the amount that, that businesses in, in America and around the world are leveraged is just going to explode. Um, if it's not first the entitlement programs that are already you know, predicted to be insolvent and contingent on pop, population growth that we just don't have anymore because, because people aren't having kids, because we're not thinking about the long term.
0: you know. All right, we need to get back to the seven generations mentality of the Iroquois nation. Um. It's but like again, you said we're we're stu- again. This is the big theme on this podcast that we're stuck in this inflection point, this anomaly in history. That like and like we've been touching on, like nobody really realizes that you're just born into the system. You start running, you start going. You're like, oh, this is just the way it fucking works. And then, so how do we get people to question? That? So that's the most important thing I think we have to get people to is just the point to even fucking question. The system they're living in I, th-
1: I think it's going to become Increasingly evident You know if you think back to Say the, the 40s and 50s I mean those were not Ideal times for a variety of reasons But you could get a house Guys our age like Would have a house And there wasn't really uh, A question about that You lived next to A variety of people Like you know If you're a garbage man Or a janitor Like you could have a house You could probably live In the same neighborhood That I could There was, there was a lot more equality But because we've now Segmented the population Into those with financial assets and those who benefit from, you know, inflationary um, monetary expansion and those who do not now, it's it's v- increasingly rare that these things that we once were able to afford as, as a civilization, we can't and so it's, I think that'll b- continue to become more pronounced and cause people to ask, how did this happen, like how do we get here, what's going on
0: yeah the and down, is, oh okay, go, go, ahead. go
1: ahead well I was going to say the downside and this is a whole other sort of um segment of the conversation is that I don't think people are going to realize why or how we got into the, the, the position that we're in and until it's po- too late, huh? Until it's too late until it's too late. Yeah. Because the, the political expedience of something like modern monetary theory. Yeah. <laughs> I, d- I saw that look on your face and I mean, that's exactly how My I Dahlia
0: feel. I just came out said it's inevitable
1: it, and it is it is cynically modern monetary theory is inevitable because the, the political uh, palatability of it is so high for politicians. It's fantastic because they no longer have to raise taxes to be able to breadwin for their constituents and people who don't pay very much attention to politics love it or uh, don't pay very much attention to economics. Love it because basically, you know, that's free stuff for everybody and there's a sort of overwhelming socialist rhetoric now because,
0: you know, capitalism has failed. Um. <laughs> oh, my God. We have not lived in a truly capitalistic system uh, in a while.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. There's uh, definitely
0: capitalistic aspects of capitalism in America, no doubt, mean, like, entrepreneurship's heavy and stuff like that, but the bailout of the banks prove bar none. Like, if you have... you, It's basically a $2 trillion socialist pro- program.
1: Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's ironic because... Uh, We've, we've only government intervention has only in, increased, you know in the 20th century and, and 21st century and that's that's when capitalism starts to fail is when it becomes crony capitalism and then all of a sudden you're awarding 400 billion billion dollars to completely dysfunctional banks because they made a huge mistake um, and uh, but but yeah, I mean like going back to even like FDR's introduction of Social Security, um, you know, uh uh, Nixon's uh, me- Medicare changes. I mean like uh, all this all this stuff is is an increased Element of socialism that is is creating huge dysfunction and and people
0: are just like calling for more of it Calling for more of it and at a time Like again going back to stats like look at the state of our society We'll talk about America in particular since we are Americans as to where we live, but uh, Like it's been an apparent like the opioid crisis is turning into an epidemic especially here in the Northeast in certain parts of the country uh depression at an all-time high suicide suicide rates at all time high and the youth it's it's rising as well if you look at the younger ages the effect that social media is having on them and uh, the clout chasing sort of uh environment that they've been brought up in is is leading them astray and it's being proven in the stats of mental health because so mental health wise we're we're going in the wrong direction in this country and i think tying it all back together to the the separation of the haves and have-nots that this monetary policy is is basically set into play, and like you said, like the people with financial assets with paper wealth are allowed to inflate that paper wealth via the money printing. Uh, the, the people who do not have access to those types of investments are are getting left behind and getting their purchasing power destroyed via inflation slowly but surely over time. And again, it's you're starting and, and then at the same time you have the goddamn fucking government in this country is so ass backwards. The framing of the conversation at the political level doesn't even make sense. In my opinion, it's all just a bunch of shouting against each other or excuse me past each other. And we're getting to a point where like politics is so polarized that people are starting to physically lash out. Like if you wear a MAGA hat walking around, it's a good chance in some places you'll get punched in the face. Somebody will take your hat and like the, the rhetoric Around global warming now too, like you can see, definitely there's about to be like social justice warriors coming at you if you don't agree with with all their their views on climate and stuff. It seems like there's tensions building up between different sects uh, of the uh, of the underprivileged in this in this two tiered society. That again, it feels like the fabric of our the continuity of our society is sort of slowly somebody's somebody's pulling the thread of the sweater. Yep. Yep and i think the
1: possibility of meaningful reform in the existing political infrastructure that we have here to me is just kind of out of the question i i think that ship has sailed on it. really unfortunately and i i i don't say that with with um, well with uh, lightly
0: no this is something like again going back to the mechanics of our government like why do we have 100 senators 535 representatives nine judges and a president like the way it's set up like The mechanics of our government was set up in a time where people had to fucking ride horses to get to the the fucking state building to speak on behalf of their constituencies. We live in a time and an era where we do not need these politicians They basically represent our voice. We allocate our voice to them to speak on our behalf. I'm not calling for direct democracy or anything, but there is a way they are. uh, They are a very constricting. It's a very constricting System at this point considering the technology and the 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 open communication channels that we have as a society
1: Yeah, I, it, you know the the fix is not so clear to me. Um, it's not clear to me either. There's a really great book um, Called amusing ourselves to death, which is a very short book It's maybe hundred pages and it's about the way that television as a medium affected politics and um, What the author talks about is is back, you know in the early days of this country the political process, um, as you can imagine, was very low tech. And if you were a politician, you would get up and make a two-three hour long speech that had been memorized in front of a group of people, and then you would take questions. And if you wanted to participate in political discourse, you, you know, you had to write, you had to read, um, you had to go out and you talk to people face to face. Whereas, when television came around. Um, Education and political participation got mixed in with entertainment and all of a sudden You know you could sort of feel like you were being informed Or you could feel like you were participating when really you were consuming something that was crafted blue
0: versus red
1: Yeah, exactly exactly Um blue man yelling at red man and and you know, it's it's a sort of another case of uh, a vested interest manipulating people who don't have time or interest to really figure economics and politics out. And so uh, democracy doesn't work and I know you weren't advocating for for democracy because you know in in a short summary it's it's uh, two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner, right? Mm-hmm. Um what I what I love about bitcoin is that it's a sort of modular advancement to it's, it's removing a function of government that could be manipulated and indeed is being manipulated in a very big way by 19 people um, on the FOMC, um, 19 or 17, whatever the number is. I think uh, it's 12
0: voting governors and then you have like
1: six on the bench or something like that. the seven, yeah, the seven yeah. Um, at the federal level. Um, so you have 19 people controlling the money supply, you know, and allegedly they're not they're not political because they're not elected they're not, you know they they don't have explicit party affiliations or whatever but we all know that's that's garbage these are human beings this is a human system we've all seen the wire we know what happens <laughs> we know how this goes we know how this movie ends like they get they get they get politically invested somehow because they're human beings and they have interests um and so money like again you know most people don't realize this it it affects everything else. It is upstream of everything else. It, that's
0: why like, and there's been tr- tropes throughout history, like money is the core of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. Like money drives everything. Money makes the world go around. Like stack money. Fuck bitches, get money. Like <laughs> like it, it, there's, it feels like there's been like warnings throughout history. Like pay attention to the money, pay attention to the money. Like, yes. Please pay attention to the money. That's what makes the world go around. And We have completely not been paying attention to the money for a few decades now
1: because it's it's the crystallization of people's time and time obviously is the scarcest resource. And so as soon as as soon as you affect money, it's hard to tell, you know, uh, what isn't affected. So my point being that that Bitcoin in particular takes money out of the control of of any given human being. And I, I think that the effects of that and the benefit of that cannot be understated. But... Um, I don't know how long it's going to take, man. It, 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 it could be a really long time because there um, is a huge. <laughs> I, I doubt that um, <laughs> everybody's just going to sort of make this smooth migration to decide, you know, that oh yeah, like uh, this this computer program that supplies our money is good, and furthermore, we want to completely upset the existing power structures and um, uh, the uproot <laughs> the yeah.
0: system we were born into.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think what's way more likely. Is that something like MMT is going to come to the fore, and that the printing presses are going to heat up and they aren't going to stop?
0: I'm just waiting for my Yang Gang uh, Freedom <laughs> divi- Dividend, but that's like, yeah, yeah. I I completely agree. I think QE Infinity is going to keep going. Modern Monetary, I mean, it's going to go until it can't anymore. And that's uh, I mean, and like you said, like we can't force people to question this stuff. It's it's like what Matt and I say on Rabbit Hole Recap, like. You want Bitcoin before you need it. Um, people aren't going to realize they yeah. need it until it's too late. Uh, yeah, totally, for, totally for a large chunk of people. Um, what, to, what was I about to go into? Uh, what did I mention before that?
1: Well, I okay. So one of the things that that um, you had mentioned earlier was my sort of like binary valuation yes, thesis. That's what I want to go into about Bitcoin, um, which I think is kind of a it's kind of encouraging. For and I while. have a follow up question. That okay, well. cool, cool, cool. So I've been thinking a little bit recently that basically in the mid to long-term Bitcoin has a binary outcome. It's either a success and people use it or it's a complete failure for some reason that we discover later on, um, which I don't think will amount to like, like it becoming illegal or something. I think that's kind of a short run um, condition, but um, so I'm, I'm thinking that, yeah, basically Bitcoin is either worth an incredible amount or it's worth nothing. And so as a result, like the sort of expected value for you right now. I you, you only have to own a little a little bit of bitcoin, like a, you know, if if you own a little bit, then um you stand to gain a huge amount if it appreciates and you stand to lose not not that much um right now. So, I guess this is like when people refer to bitcoin as being a call option on like a future system of value. That that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. And so I guess a lot of the reason I've been paying attention to macroeconomics economics is like well, maybe I should rebalance a little bit and and you know figure out like what's another place to put my money. But <laughs> in the course of doing that, it's it's become apparent to me just how grim you know kind of any other means of value store
0: is. Right. And so, speaking of Bitcoin specifically, in your medium to long term view, like what needs to happen like at the protocol and infrastructure level for it to be ready for this? because like, that's like what I wrote about in the Ben today, like 2017 during the euphoria during the run up. Uh, December of that year, like the exchange infrastructure wasn't ready. Fees went through the roof, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, SegWit wasn't adopted yet. Like where are we from like a protocol level, efficiency standpoint, and like an overall infrastructure standpoint to to making this possible for not even mass adoption, but adoption at a material level?
1: The faster that Bitcoin ossifies, the better in my mind. Mm -hmm. We could freeze it today and it wouldn't be ideal but it would be workable um i think the malleability fix you know even if segwit hadn't made it in i mean it would be a total pain to do lightning but you could do it you could work it out there are second layer schemes um you know that that can compensate for that so my my position is one of kind of extreme conservatism um i want to make Bitcoin as resilient as possible, as quickly as possible, so that we can basically just solidify it um, and cement it. Um, because my real concern would be a sort of populist perversion of Bitcoin, where we're making changes and we keep making changes at a pretty rapid clip, and all of a sudden uh, there's kind of popular sentiment for some kind of you know inflation schedule that's different than the one that we have now. Um, ew. Yeah. Ew. Ew
0: freaks if that ever gets proposed um get your pitchforks out we we'll just be right not your pitchforks just get ready to fork and not not implement that code <laughs> yeah. your figurative pitchfork <laughs> um um no, but, i agree completely and so you do you think okay it's not perfect right now but it'd be workable yes yeah
1: absolutely if 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 you if you cemented bitcoin um i mean i think um in terms of the consensus layer yes uh, obviously there you know we're going to keep needing to make peer to peer upgrades um uh just in terms of making sure that everything's resilient um but I, I think generally speaking with consensus it's it's workable right now that being said um the improvements that are slated um for a proposal i think peter just just uh, dropped his uh his his software proposal um, recently, yesterday. Ooh, I don't know if you saw that. I it's did not it's, see it's that. floating Finally around. Dropped. It's floating around, and uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, graft root, which is basically a technique for making um, any one sort of Bitcoin script type resemble any other, um, is, is really nice. That's a really great improvement. Schnorr, obviously, for its aggregation potential and simplicity huge improvement um, Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say graft I'm in tap. Root. tap root, yeah. yeah, so so graft root then is really exciting because it sort of allows you to dynamically append spend conditions to a coin which would allow you to sort of You know amend S-
0: smart contract. I guess, I think.
1: Yeah, it's 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 smart contract D mm-hmm. um, But it's a good protocol and again it still just resembles like a, a small Bitcoin transaction in the way that that Taproot does so those things are really really exciting and they're really cool and I and I think you know there's a good chance that they will have them um, and they're great but they're not necessary um, what is necessary is that the, the properties that Bitcoin exhibits right now stay intact um, and, and I think there's a really good chance that that will be the case but I think you know there's an interesting debate about like the privacy technology on chain. Um, I'm kind of skeptical of that because I think that Bitcoin's auditability is 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 more critical than on-chain privacy, and I think that there are second-layer approaches to doing privacy.
0: I agree, and don't tell Eric Boswell that.
1: I w- oh god, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to get that Bi- that guy mad. Don't want to
0: meet that kind of back alley. Bitcoin's not audible. auditable. Auditable. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's I, what he's saying. Uh, I don't want to speak for him okay on his All right. Um and I'm too stupid to, to present his idea with. I know, I know he's got some very uh, nuanced uh, and I aggressively think he has, presented he has, uh, ideas. He has some thoughts on Nick Carter's proof of solvency theory that you can force exchanges to sort of prove that they're solvent to a certain extent.
1: Okay, yeah. all right. Okay, well, Nick Carter's another gem. Another gem.
0: Another gem uh, Bitcoin. Another past TFTC TC guest. Here. I
1: wonder if he's a beefy Bitcoin boy. He's not a beefy Bitcoin boy. No, There's very few of us. How do we induct beefy
0: Bitcoin noise? I don't know. I think we have to, I think we have to uh, Greco-Roman wrestle. Like How chest. much do you have
1: to be able to squat to become
0: a beefy uh, I'm Bitcoin? I'm not a big squatter. I'm um, more free weight guy. Okay. No, that's that, okay, that's fine. I don't that's know. That's fine. I, it's deadlift. We're a deadlifting community. Okay. All right. Okay. got to be able to deadlift can, yep. uh, at least your body weight, one and a half times your body weight. There say. we go. Yeah. I like that. That's, that seems that's like a, a good a, metric. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure I can do that right now. I'm sure you can do that. Yeah. You're a strong guy, Marty. Um, yeah, you're looking. You're looking extra beefy these days, <laughs> in a good way, not in a doughy way. Thanks, man. Lean, it's,
1: lean beef. It's been a rough few weeks with the moving, but um, I'm I want to get back into the the CrossFit classes as soon as I can.
0: Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to loop back to that uh, we were talking about at coffee that I wanted to bring up in our macro chat is like we were talking about the monetary policies affecting the inequality and stuff like that. but then like, and the social programs are affecting stuff like that. And then we talked about minimum wage too. And I, this is another important factor that I think is, is another important variable that I think is factoring into the sort of degradation, degradation of our society to a certain extent is like, and I, this thought came to be after watching a Thomas Sowell uh, conversation that was published in December, by uh i believe the hoover institute or the hoover university or something like that and he basically explained how like and it makes sense like minimum wage all it does is is the most important demographic that it affects probably is teenagers looking to get their first jobs and develop work ethic and if you take away the ability for teenagers to develop a work ethic they're not going to develop a work ethic and or they're going to have a harder time doing it later in life. The the argument I'm trying to make is like, I started working when I was 12 and I think that work ethic of starting then and being able to have jobs that were paying cash under the table and stuff like that was really formative to who I p- have become as a person and learning, learning hard lessons as a teenager because I was able to be paid under, under the table was, was huge. Right. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. Um, and just even, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like, um, even having the possibility to to go out and get a job as a young or unexperienced or or you know someone who's been marginalized by society um that that process of being able to bootstrap yourself into the labor market to accumulate experience you know on the job um is is so incredibly important, and it's the epitomization of one of these policies where it's sort of naively touted by people who you know probably genuinely want to do the right thing and help people but it ends up hurting the most marginalized people and and reinforcing a sort of like um virtualization or intellectualization of our of our world and our economy. I mean, you need to go out and work a shitty job as a as a as a child. Like it's a formative experience. You learn how to deal with the crazy general public, how to deal with like uh you know, uh, uh, maybe sometimes oppressive managerial structures like like you, you learn how to adapt to all these conditions, and and furthermore, you have all these wonderful experiences that you just you wouldn't otherwise if you just jumped right into a white collar kind of
0: kind of workforce. If you're fortunate enough to be able to do so, yeah. And um, then again, the opportunity cost—if you're not able to get a job, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be hanging out, doing bad. You'd be shit. selling
1: drugs, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if if all right. So if you're a kid in the inner city in a shitty part of town. um you're already getting screwed by your education system because it's doing nothing for you. You're probably screwed. You know, let's, let's assume Nutritionally,
0: you're in a food desert. Most likely. Yeah, you're
1: in a food desert. Like there might be racism affecting you. You know, basically the odds are stacked against you and your only hope is in some cases going out and getting a job and like bootstrapping yourself into society. Um, and often like the, the best way to do that is a, is a low wage job. And I mean, there's some great statistics out there about the fact that people often readily advanced beyond the minimum wage. Uh, there are very few people who actually sit at the minimum wage. And um, I'd refer people to a recent episode of uh, uh, Russ Roberts' excellent podcast called the Econ Talk, where he talks to a guy in um, at the University of Washington who did a very comprehensive study on minimum wage. And he found that basically, you know, there are people who benefit from minimum wage, but they're really not people who need the benefit the most the people who are hurt most by a minimum wage are people who lack experience who you know are teenagers um, who are maybe you know systematically discriminated against because remember if you're charging a minimum wage that's an excuse for someone to indulge in their biases not to hire you so if you can out compete somebody on price that allows you to overcome bias in society but if everybody's stuck at this floor of like say $15 an hour then you know, like the pretty blonde girl who applies to be a cashier is ten out of ten times going to get that job uh, before you do, whereas if you can actually compete on price and negotiate then you you can get into a workplace and and accumulate experience for yourself so i th- I think your point's a really good one that it just kind of epitomizes um this increased sort of like uh restriction on freedom that's 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 leading people to live these. Sort of detached short term lives Where there aren't many prospects for accumulating Wealth over the long term
0: Yeah again like Detached we're a society detached From reality to a certain extent like we Were talking about a call like are we crazy like Are we the ones like are we the crazy ones <laughs> I Is think everything okay Yeah, Is everything okay if we're just crazy I, I, I mean you know if
1: you look back there, there were some crazy things going on In the 20th century you know I mean uh, We were putting Japanese people in Internment camps There is incredible stagflation in the 70s, oil shortages, people waiting hours in line for gas, inflation was crazy. I mean, some part of me thinks like, wow, we're doing a lot better than we were back then, Um, and at least now we have technology, but I, I, I am constantly amazed at the rate of change, especially in our lives. I mean, if you think about it, we're the last generation that was born really before the mass deployment of the internet, before we were sitting on computers all day. You know, you and I were probably like running outside in the woods as kids
0: mm-hmm. for entertainment. I was in North Philly playing double Dutch, or not playing double Dutch, double dutching.
1: Double Dutch. Oh man, you knew how to double Dutch.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. There was uh, there were some girls on the block that liked to double Dutch. Nice. Uncle Marty would hop in every once in a while. You
1: nice. Know? <laughs> that's a, dude. That's a great image. <laughs> Marty fun. doing it's doing fun. double
0: Dutch. I don't know if I could do it today. It double Dutch. You really got to time your your entrance.
1: Yeah, that 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 struck me. I mean, I I'd be scared for my. Uh, my physical well-being trying to do double dutch it took me a while to get rope skills you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) no like yeah like we are that bridge generation things are changing at a rapid pace but i I think we are succeeding in spite of the system at least the political and monetary system that we find ourselves under yeah yeah yeah. and is it success like is is this quote-unquote progress success is there such thing as uh, so what I'm looking for admirable uh, progress versus uh, sort of uh, frowned upon progress. Like, do we want rappers rapping about lean and sort of people clout chasing about doing Xanax and right fucking bitches and twerking and all that stuff? Or, right, 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 Or do we want uh sort of a society with mission driven society? Again, going back to like seven generations. Like, that's again, we're not mission driven. We're clout driven. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah and and i think one interesting thing that crosses my mind a lot you know again um worrying about being a being a sort of perma bear pessimist is is that sometimes i think that material success and wealth almost sows the seeds of its own downfall because in getting really comfortable and you know and having all these these wonderful innovations of the 20th century we've gotten really comfortable especially you know, being in America and having a reserve currency and all the privileges that come with that, like maybe because things are so comfortable, we've, we've become soft and we've forgotten where prosperity actually comes from because it was
0: already here when we showed up. Yeah. So this is like the hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men.
1: Or something. Wow. Yeah. That, that hits the nail on the head. Yeah. And, and I really worry that we're in the later part of that cycle. Where Here it is.
0: Hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times.
1: Yeah. So there's a really kind of poetic symmetry to that 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 rings true and it's really concerning because it tells me that I don't think things are going to get better until they get a lot worse. And we really undergo
0: some kind of catastrophe, which I'm not looking forward to. Um, Well this goes into another thing we were talking about pre-record is maybe this is something that you can only recognize back in retrospect and maybe we're living through rock bottom right now um obviously not uh not represented by like a crash in the stock market or anything like that but um just in again like overall mental health of society and the health of the the family balance sheet and stuff like that maybe we'll look back in retrospect and be like ah this was either the beginning middle or end of that that sort of uh, calamity yeah yeah it's
1: really hard to tell where we're at because i think over the past decade we we <laughs> we've gotten this influx of new technology new communication patterns i mean think about the amount that we use twitter on a daily basis like it scares me the the amount that i
0: want to use twitter um I'm bad bro. Huh? I'm real bad. <laughs> you see me in my corner here. You see this is this is me all day. <laughs> Just in this corner. It's 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 really really hard not to be because it's such
1: fierce stimulation and the content is genuinely so interesting and like we're going out and we're you know reading everything these other bitcoiners are doing and it, it genuinely is uh uh meaningful and stimulating but it's it's this mode of consumption too. And you can just sit there and scroll and scroll and scroll. And a lot of people do this. And I've even noticed in myself that production becomes much harder because it used to be when I was, when I was a kid, um, you know, I'd sit down and write something. I'd write a journal entry. I'd write a, a program. And I'd get a big dopamine hit out of that because creation is fun and it feels good. But when you're reading Twitter, you can kind of get some of those similar feelings. You can feel like you're doing something, feel like you're being productive uh, without producing anything at all. And um, so it's it's a little bit scary, and I and I kind of wonder about how that balance breaks down.
0: Yeah, let me let me get a little pushback here, but like maybe the participation in that is helping create a hive mind, right? I think that's like that's one of been one of my biggest uh, lines about Twitter. It's like a huge empathy creation tool, and yes. part of that empathy creation is or empathy creation is probably part uh, part parcel on the way to becoming like a hive mind like society. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, and I, I mean. Hive mind to me sounds a little bit scary, but I think I know what you're getting at, yeah. which is a sort of more fluid and liquid consciousness yes. that, that people share. Um, and I think that's great. And, and I don't want to sound like a Luddite. I, I don't want to go back to a time before Twitter because I think we can't. It's here. It's, you know, in, in the same way that Bitcoin has been discovered, it's, Pandora's box has been opened and we just have to adapt to the new world.
0: Yeah, and 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 Twitter too. Like I would argue, it's better. Right? It's provided me and you know, I wouldn't. I would not be here right now without Twitter. Like this podcast would not exist. Yes, yeah, totally. My newsletter would not exist without yeah. Twitter. Like uh, this podcast literally would not exist if I did not DM somebody on Twitter and was like, "You should not be shilling Ethereum to barstool audience." Yeah. And yeah. That's how this started, and like, but it is you have it is. I'm trying to think of an analogy, but it's it's like such a powerful tool that you have to learn how to like tame your your interaction with it.
1: It is sort of like like Bitcoin for communication, you know. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it it completely it's like a Hayekian distribution network of of ideas and thoughts and 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 your merit has allowed you to basically start with nothing and become, you know, Marty from TFTC. And so uh, I I think that's a beautiful thing and and uh, yeah, I think you're right that there's there's a whole lot of good that's going on. I think in general the way that I would characterize our times is that We live in very interesting times as the Chinese proverb goes and and some crazy things are happening with the monetary system But the saving grace is that we have these technological tools now. that are being discovered and created actively that allow us to take back some of the individuals autonomy and to really um, Try and try and make a good future for ourselves. So I'm excited
0: about that. I'm as well. I'm happy to be on the front lines uh, Trying to make Bitcoin become a thing or it already is a thing trying to make it become successful Already successful. Trying to make other people realize that they need it. There we go. Um, we're almost two hours in here. It's been Holy incredible. Cow. Been an incredible time as always. Um, I guess let's end it here. Uh, what? What? Any parting notes? Parting thoughts? Parting ponderings? Do you have for the freaks out there?
1: Uh, I hope this wasn't too uh, sporadic of a journey for you, freaks. Uh, they love the sporadicness. Cool. Yeah. At least I, mean, I do. How do you? Are Are you okay with being the Joe Rogan of uh, the the Bitcoin podcast uh, game?
0: I don't I don't I don't think I deserve that title,
1: but um I think you do if if anything, I think you surpassed Joe like the Joe Rogan equivalent because Joe's cool but he, he's very hit or miss and he's very marketing y and I think you're you're none of those. So um I appreciate the kind words, James. I'm a big fan. I'm really I'm really just um saying all these nice things to Marty so that he'll give me one of his cool hats that he's <laughs> just made. Uh, if, if you don't know what cool hat I'm talking about, go to the recently released, uh, tales from the crypt website.
0: Uh, by the time this episode's posted, yes, this will, this will be a true statement. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm, yeah, I think they might be sold out by the time. That's a good point. That's a good point, but check anyway. Actually, I'm thinking about launching this today, but
1: well, you know, take your time. This might be, make it right.
0: Yeah, I should make it right. Um, Got a lot, yeah, free freaks out there who aren't aware. I got a lot of inventory in the docket, so we might be getting three episodes a week for the next couple months. So, um, James, it's always a pleasure. Sitting down with a fellow beefy Bitcoin boy pondering about Bitcoin in the world. I'm overall optimistic. If this came off as a pessimistic conversation, just gloss over that. We're we're overall optimistic, I would argue, and I think it's because we finally have a common mission, which is Bitcoin, uh, which provides an optimistic view of the future.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself, Marty. Always good to be on the pod.
0: Well, can't wait to do it again soon. Peace and love, freaks.